0: Alright, if you would, take out your Bible in front of you and uh, open up to the Gospel of John chapter 11. Um, We're going to start at verse 17. If you didn't bring a Bible, take the one out in front of you and open it up. And if you don't own a Bible, take it home. That is a gift to you so that you have God's Word everywhere you go. Um, But our reading today begins in John chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe That you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, today is, is the final Sunday before we enter Holy Week. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And we are in our fifth week in our series that we are calling I am because we're walking through the seven I am statements that Jesus makes about himself in the gospel of John the way that Jesus fills in the blank I am blank I was writing my sermon and preparing my slides this week at home and my daughter Sophie who's sick she came into my office when this slide was pulled up and she said daddy you've got to fill in the blank it's not done yet And and so I said, oh, I'm so glad you asked. We filled it in already, right? Jesus has filled it in. We've covered several statements already. Each one of these statements has been progressive. And it's led us to closer to the events that are about to take place in Jerusalem. Jesus next Sunday is going to enter the city on a donkey. He'll enter hailed as a king and then days later betrayed, arrested, and killed on a cross Like a common criminal. And these statements progressively lead him in the story that we're reading in the gospel to that place. And yet as we stand removed from them 2,000 years and halfway around the world, they might not sound quite as confrontational to us as they were to those who heard them originally. So far we've been through four. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. I am the light of the world. I am the gate or the door. And in the same chapter, he said, I am the good shepherd. And even though each one of these statements creates this increasing tension between Jesus and the religious authorities, to you and I, I hope you found, if you've been with us through this series, that every one of these things is life-giving if Jesus is your Lord, right? Right? It's life-giving to know that he's the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate of the door, the good shepherd. And I know that it's life-giving because chances are we've all prayed to God for the gifts of these things. And many of us have faith to believe that God is capable and willing to provide them to us. For example, when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, how many of you have ever prayed For bread. Show of hands, how many of you have ever prayed for a job or you've been in a situation where you needed money, right? Like we've probably all been in that situation, and that is a prayer for bread. That is what Jesus has taught us. I am the bread of life, and we have faith that Jesus can provide those things. Light. Have you ever prayed to God to shed light in your life? In a place that feels so dark. Maybe choices. You don't know which direction to go. Or maybe things look dreary in the shadows. And there's danger that's lurking. You need God's light to shine in the darkness. We've all prayed. For light, How about the door or the gate? The good shepherd, it all kind of ties together as one. We want God to welcome us into his home. And when we find ourselves lost, or those who we love are lost, do we not need God to be the good shepherd? To go out and chase after that one lost sheep. Whether it's you, or whether it's your wayward child, your addicted spouse, your friend that you know needs God. They keep running up against things that you know God could come alongside them in the midst of, but they're so far away. And so we pray to the good shepherd because we know that the good shepherd rescues the sheep. And we all need rescuing at times, don't we? And so we've all prayed all of these I Am statements. They lead us into prayers that we believe God can answer we prayed for all of them but I would venture a guess that today's I am statement is one that many of us have not prayed for and we might not know how to pray for it we might not necessarily know if God would answer a prayer if we did pray in this way today's I am statement Jesus says in John chapter 11 I am the resurrection and the life and so I want to ask you have you ever prayed for that one And I don't mean like prayed some distant prayer about a disconnected, ambiguous future hope for heaven, but have you ever prayed for resurrection? Have you ever prayed in the face of something, not something that's dying or someone, but it's already dead? And have you ever prayed that God would bring life out of death? It's the prayer that you can only pray when it's too late to pray. When tragedy has already occurred, when a relationship or an opportunity has already ended, when a divorce is already final, when the cancer has already spread, when bankruptcy has already been declared, when the job is already over, or as we'll learn today, when your loved one has already died. How do you pray then? How do you pray in those moments? That's what we're going to begin to scratch the surface of learning about today. But to get there, we've got to go back. We always have to go back, right? But especially we've got to go back here because we're jumping into what seems to be in the context that we're reading are reading today, a hopeless situation. And so we've got to see where we go and, and how we've gotten to where we are at this moment. At the very beginning of John chapter 11 in verse 1, we start the scene. It says, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, Lazarus and his sisters, they all lived together in the town of Bethany. They were good friends of Jesus. These are the kind of people that Jesus spent time with. They were the kind of people that he could unwind. Um, I remember a number of years ago I was I was studying this and, and I I don't even remember the book. If somebody can remind me of the book, because I quoted someone else um, who said that Jesus had refrigerator rights with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And I really like that. What it means is that he had license to just walk right in. He, he could put his feet up. He could walk into the kitchen and open up the refrigerator. Did you, when you were growing up, did you have friends like that? Maybe friends in the neighborhood that you could just walk into their house. You knew where the key was. You knew which door was never locked, right? If you were hanging out there for dinner and you wanted a glass of milk, you didn't ask, Mr. and Mrs. DeGru, can I have a note? You just went to the refrigerator because you're so close, you have refrigerator Right. So I had somebody at the last service was telling me that's how she had an experience. she had that relationship with her sister growing up. Um, her sister was a lot older, and um, she had that relationship with her sister and her sister's first husband, and her husband passed away uh, tragically, and she got remarried some years later, and she said, "I'll never forget the first time I went over to their house, they were newly married. I walked in, I started opening up the refrigerator, and her new husband looked at me and said, "Who do you think you are?" And she said, "I have refrigerator rights." And so Jesus had refrigerator rights. This is how close he was to Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And I say that to, to, to just start to paint the picture. How do you think he felt when he found out that Lazarus was sick? Verse three the sisters sent word to Jesus Lord, the one you love is sick. And, and he's not like sniffles sick, he is deathly ill. And and I'm not making that up. If I read the rest of the story, I'll see that this is such a disease that he will literally die from it. And so right away, Jesus declares in verse 4, he says, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. The first thing we learn is actually maybe the main thing that we're going to learn And that we get to experience. So I want you to kind of put it on the shelf in the back of your head. Is that resurrection brings glory to God. God is in the business of taking things that have died. And bringing new life out of the ashes. Resurrection brings glory to God. And the truth is for Lazarus. This sickness will not end in death. But death will be one of the symptoms. He is going to die. But it isn't going to end in death. And, and we'll see what he means as we continue. Verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And this just sounds informative, but it's actually probably my second favorite verse in this whole chapter. Uh, the first one, of course, is the resurrection. But this is my second favorite, maybe because I'm a pastor. And I've prayed with countless people, many of you in the face of, Impossible situations where you're holding the hand of someone who is terminally ill, or you're facing a a circumstance that that, that this relationship has died, that it is broken, that it doesn't seem to be coming back. It's not going to come back. I've seen you, I've sat with you in those moments. And so the reason I love this verse is that I'm comforted that John makes it a point to say that Jesus doesn't just love the one who's sick. But he loves Martha and Mary too. Jesus loves the one who loves the one who's sick. Jesus is with those who are alongside the hurting just as he is with those who are hurting themselves. And that's a really important point. Because what we're going to learn here is that Lazarus is going to be dead for four days before Jesus performs this incredible sign that brings glory to God and he raises him from the dead. And there's a lot we don't know about what happens in those four days. We don't know what happened to Lazarus, like what his experience was. Right? You talk to people who've had these near-death experiences. Maybe, maybe they died on an operating room table and doctors brought them back to life. And, and, and you talk to them and you hear all these stories. Somebody at the last service was telling me they were reading a whole book about these stories. And I've heard these stories where sometimes people see, they see a bright light or they see their loved ones right, who have gone before them. We don't know, though, for Lazarus, we don't know what he saw. We don't know what that experience was. We don't know if his great-grandparents were there in those four days. Or we don't know if angels were chasing him away, saying, Go back! It's not your time! We don't know. But we do know the experience of Martha and Mary. We actually see what happened to them. And over those four days, they were overcome with grief. And I think that's why it's so important to see that Jesus loves all of them. He doesn't just love the one who's sick. He loves the one who loves the one who's sick. And so so you got four days that go by, and Jesus and his disciples, they make this dangerous journey back to Bethany. And at the time that they arrive, Lazarus has already died. He's been dead for a while. It says, verse 17, On arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, And now Bethany was less than two miles away from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Lazarus was dead for four days, and that's long enough to place his body in a tomb, to wrap it in cloths, for family and friends to gather to mourn. And it reminds me of how in our culture today, we are nothing like this. We are so very quick to move on when someone dies, to move on through death. And I get it, I, I I want to, that's my knee-jerk reaction too, in the face of death, in my own circle of family and friends, and those I love. But Jewish custom was very different. Actually, most customs are very different. And, and for Jewish people at this day and time, it called for several days, even weeks, of not just individual mourning, but communal mourning as people would come together. And the closest thing that I can think of is, is my experience with my grandmother when she passed away. Uh, her name is Margaret Gladstone. She, she died 10 years ago, just this last February. Um, She was a devout Catholic. As I looked back at my own faith tradition, um, she was the person in my family who took faith the most serious. Um, And I saw it through the lens of her losing her husband, my grandpa, when he was quite young to colon cancer. I saw it as she was a Eucharistic minister, go to the hospital and visit people um, who were sick. I saw it in the fact that she did not miss church. Uh, She had a summer home right in Williams Bay. And I lived in Illinois and we would come up for the summer. And if I was there on Sunday, we had to go to church. And so when she passed away, her arrangements included everything that could be included in somebody's Arrangement. She had a four-hour visitation at the funeral home the night before the service. There was a visitation for the family with the deacon from the church before that visitation had even occurred. There was an hour visitation before the service the next day at the church. And then, of course, a full funeral mass with Holy Communion. There was a special service out at the cemetery before her body was laid to rest. And as one of the final gifts that she gave her family, uh, she left provisions that allowed us immediate family members to spend the night together between the visitation and the funeral at a hotel that was close by where those things were occurring. And and it was a very kind gesture, but I just want to be honest with you. Alyssa, my wife and I, at the time we only had our first two boys, our oldest boys, and they were three and one. And I was dreading all of it. (laughs) I thought the last thing that I want to do, like you should have met especially our one-year-old when he was one, Evan, oh my goodness. If there was a kid that would have been capable of destroying a funeral home and a church in 10 minutes or less just by running around, that was Evan. And so I'm dreading this. We gotta, you know, and I'm the oldest grandson and I was the favorite grandson. I can say that because none of my siblings are here. Um, (laughs) But I was. Being the, I thought, I'm going to have to stay, right? I'm going to have to be here for all these things, which means all these people that we don't know are going to be squeezing the cheeks of my kids, and I'm going to be chasing them down all night long and just trying to make sure that they don't destroy the place. And, and I'll never forget, as much as we felt that way leading into that particular day, after the visitation, that night we went to the hotel, and we were all in the pool, Together For a little while, my kids and my siblings and my cousins, and, and we were just together, this brief moment where we were, we were grieving, but we were also laughing, and we were enjoying one another's company, and it was in that moment that I realized this is why this process matters. It was It was actually eerily similar to when I got married, and I remember looking down the aisle and seeing all these people dressed up and seeing my wife and her beautiful dress, and I, I didn't you know I, I, I didn't want to go through all that, but then I saw it on, and I was like, "Oh, this is why we make such a big deal about this." and we're in the pool, and, and everybody's around, and we're mourning, but we're also celebrating, and I'm thinking, this is why mourning takes as long as it does." And it should, and you almost get to the point, and we did there, and I know many of you have too, where you're in the middle of all of the arrangements and you almost don't want it to be over, right? You don't want the service to end, you don't want the luncheon to be done, you don't want the last guest to leave because you know that as soon as all of that is over and that person that you love is laid to rest and the tombstone is placed before them, it's finished, and nobody wants it to be finished, do they? Nobody wants it to be finished. And that's why we fight as hard as we can through our effort and through our prayer, right up until the moment of death, right? We beg God for more bread, for more light, for more hope. And yet, sometimes death still comes. Actually, it always comes eventually. Not just for my grandma, but it comes for every job that you've ever prayed to receive. An end comes to every relationship, even marriage, till death does us part. There'll come a point where we're parted every opportunity. And so, what do we do then? How do you pray then? Have you ever prayed for a resurrection? Lazarus is dead. This is where we are, okay? He's been dead for four days. They've been mourning, and Jesus comes in this moment, verse 20, and it says, Martha heard that Jesus was coming, and she went out to meet him. Mary stayed at home, and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words... Martha says, I know exactly what I would have asked for. I know exactly what I would have prayed for. Four days ago, I would have asked you to ask the Father for a healing. That's what I would have done. That's what I would have asked for. Verse 22, she says, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. See, notice she still has faith, but now that he's dead, I'm not sure she knows what to pray for. And so it almost throws it back at Jesus, and he responds by saying, your brother will rise again. He's giving her the prayer to pray. Have you ever prayed for a resurrection? He's giving it to her. And and, and the response she gives is, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know. I get it. It's like when a loved one passes away, and somebody says they're off in a better place, they're no longer in any pain, right? Right? It's what we think when we think about resurrection, we think about death, we think about life after death in some distant, disconnected place. And the question that we're we're caused to ask here is, what happens when you realize that resurrection is standing right in front of you right now? The substance of resurrection is before you. You are in the presence of resurrection itself, because that's what's Happening In verse 25, Jesus says to her, she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will ever, never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replies, I believe. That you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. She believes. And yet on some level, she still doesn't know what Jesus is about to do. And it's at that time that Mary hears that Jesus is here. And she comes running to him. Verse 32, she falls at his feet and she says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing. Same thing. I would have known exactly how to pray to you four days ago. Verse 33, And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come alongside her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. gonna adventure a guess that you're all going to come to church on Easter, right? Because you're here now. <laughs> and you came into, to, you know, every Sunday's Easter in church, right? That's why Lent is 40 days plus Sundays. Because we just can't help ourselves but to celebrate the resurrection at least once a week, right? even in the season of being somber and leading up to Jesus death we can't help it we've got to celebrate it it's on sundays right and so you walked into a christian church this is a place in which we gather around a very simple concept it is that we have faith and we believe in a god who was literally dead and he's not dead anymore he has overcome his death and And he has overcome our death as a result of that. And we come together and we gather. And millions and millions of people do so at the same time. And in their own respective churches each and every week to celebrate the God of the resurrection. And so the question is, if that is our God. If he is the one that we believe has overcome the ultimate impossible circumstance. Which is our death then why don't we pray for resurrections in the face of every moment and experience of death that we face? Literal death, but death of opportunity and relationship and all the other ways in which death creeps into our lives. And I I have a theory for why we don't ask for resurrection more often, and I think it's because we don't know how God will respond if we do. It sounds too audacious. If I ask Jesus for resurrection, what's he going to do? How is he going to respond? And I'm glad you asked. Because we get an answer from the Gospel of John in this story of resurrection with Lazarus. The first thing that we see Jesus does is Jesus loves you. When you pray for resurrection, when you're facing death, the death of somebody that you love, or a circumstance, or a relationship, or a situation, and you come before God and you say, God, this is dead. Bring life out of the ashes. The first way in which Jesus responds is he loves He loves. This is actually a love fest here in chapter 11. Over and over again. Who does he love? He loves the Jews that have come to mourn. He loves Mary and Martha. He loves Lazarus. He is moved deeply and troubled at the sight of the mourning at the grave of his friend. But it gets worse. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, See how he loved him. You know why? Because when you're facing an impossible circumstance, when you're praying for resurrection and somebody comes alongside you, puts their hand on your shoulder, and says, Jesus loves you, it's probably not enough, is it? Which is why the second thing that Jesus does when we pray that prayer is Jesus weeps. He weeps. He loves. He weeps. He loves and he weeps when we can't possibly fathom how to pray or how God will bring new life out of something that has died. And then in verse 37, it says, some of them said, could he not? He who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying. And Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for he has been there for four days. I don't know if the author intends this to be comic relief, but we've met Martha and Mary before, haven't we? And so, so you remember that story, right? Jesus comes to their house and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha's worried about and upset about many things, right? All the other things. I love that it's Martha who says, Jesus, you know, of all of the questions you would have for Jesus to take out a dead body out of the tomb, she says, he's gonna smell. <laughs> and of course, that's Martha to think that way, right? Verse 40, Jesus says to her, did I not tell you? That if you believe, you will see the glory of God. What did I tell you at the beginning? Resurrection brings glory to God. God is in the business of bringing life out of things that have died. He's going to do it here this week. Like you look outside, look at the snow, right? Doesn't feel like it. Right before your eyes, a world around us in Wisconsin that looks dead is going to come to life. And you're going to look out and there's going to be a beautiful sunrise this week and you're going to see the glory of God because resurrection brings glory to God. Jesus says to Mary, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone And Jesus looked up and he prayed. He said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they might believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and the cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off your grave clothes and let him go. So how do we pray when we've run out of things to pray? How does Jesus respond when we pray for a resurrection? Have you ever prayed for a resurrection? Three things. Jesus loves you. He loves you and me, especially those who are hurting, and especially those who love those who are hurting. Jesus loves. Jesus weeps outside the tomb of every death, of every divorce, Of every broken ending, Jesus weeps. But don't forget the third thing. Jesus raises the dead to life. Amen? Jesus raises the dead to life. And he does it because resurrection brings glory to God. And a quote that summarizes this so well that I read in one of the commentaries. It comes from the African American church. It says this, When the world places a period, God introduces a comma. To pray for resurrection is to pray that what feels in all of your being to be the end of a sentence in God is only the beginning of a new transition. And friends, let me tell you, that is a prayer that Jesus always says yes to because resurrection brings glory to God. And so when you pray for resurrection, know that Jesus loves you. He loves the one that you're praying for. He's weeping in the face of death, every form of death that we face, and he raises the dead to life. And the greatest sign that that is true is is not the way in which he did it for Lazarus. Lazarus is still going to die. He'll die again, maybe of old age. The greatest sign is that Jesus himself walks through death and resurrection himself, also that we might experience resurrection in every death we face as well, until death itself is no more. So let's contemplate this in a prayerful way as we listen to the way Martha and Mary may have processed watching resurrection take place in their brother right before their eyes. Let's watch. He
1: didn't want dinner. Then he went to bed early, which isn't like him. He's the night owl. Lazarus is the night owl. Something wasn't right. Sent for the only one who could help could fix it. He'd help total strangers, of course. More importantly, he was our friend. I promised Lazarus. Jesus would come. He would heal him. I was sure of it. You know, you can see it sometimes in a person's eyes that that look. And they're letting go of this world just a little bit at a time. Those four days might as well have been four lifetimes. Everything I knew about Jesus fell apart. Not that not that he wasn't the Messiah, it wasn't that. It was more personal. It was all this pain. All this doubt, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Our brother was dead, sealed in a tomb. And I said to him, if you had just been here, our brother wouldn't have died. But he said, didn't I tell you? If you would just believe would see God's glory. I knew I was supposed to embrace those four days. That gap in my life, that gap in our lives, where God made no sense at all. It was as if God wasn't even listening. But without those four days, Before, I believed in Him. Now I believe Him. We didn't understand then. Uh-huh. But we do now. He doesn't just give life. He is life. Yes. Yeah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God who comes into this world and whoever believes in Him will live.